Hello and welcome to the Total Entertainment Podcast with me, Paul Collis. Today we're down at the Motor Point Arena taking a look at Human League. Now today is a four truck show and there's two tour buses. So a relatively small show and uh, there's no there's no mega fans outside because of the temperature and uh, with the prospect of having a corona lockdown there's a question mark lurking over how many people are actually going to turn up tonight to actually see the show but so far it is a sellout but we are going on that presumption at the moment now inside the arena it's already set up by the time I got in here because it's a relatively small show all I need to do is focus a few bits and pieces which I'll get onto in a bit so to start with a line array stack left and right as well as having a set of line arrays pointing 45 degrees outwards to give the surround sound effect so pretty standard now lighting rig wise you've got a couple of bars with some basic lights on I say basic they're basic LED uh, moving lights so handful of movers handload of washers and then most of it is backlight and now I was wondering why that is I mean Yes, it looks pretty basic from a concert point of view, but we'll have a look. We'll have a look with what's going on. And then, then I looked at the set. Wow, the set looks like an 80s music video with, uh, with it all being completely white and having the steps on uh, each level of the risers. They all uh, had edges drawn in on uh, what looks like black marker pen. So the set has uh, lots of different levels on its risers and, a, and every single part of the set has got a set of steps or treads in, if we go by theatre terms. Now whenever there's a, uh, an L shape between the set and the risers there's some uh, drawn on steps which looks, makes it look like 80s cartoon style as though it's a music video. And, <laughs> and then I was thinking why have they done this? Why have they done this? And towards the end of the setup, I noticed something by the mixer at the far end of the arena. They have six giant Sanyo laser projectors. I mean, we're talking some about some we're talking about some seriously expensive, high-powered projector units. The same kind of projectors that you get in the same kind of modern projectors that you'll find in giant cinema screens. These are huge. And they when they fired them up, wow. I was thinking, absolutely wow. So all the set is designed to be uh, front projected. And the whole of the projections have been uh, LED mapped. So they can take control over certain sections of uh, the uh, projections. When they focus this, they need to get the alignments correct, or the uh, image will not color match, and not and not only color match, but line up correctly where you've got the different various projectors lining different parts of the set. So this is going to look very interesting. You've also got a massive projection screen at the back of the uh, set which is also included within the uh, projection of the set and it's going to look amazing it really is and you could tell that one truck was uh, definitely just for the staging blocks and the levels and whatnot one truck would be for sound one truck will be for lighting and one truck for everything else or uh, overs and spares 
also at the back of the stage you've got a ladder truss either side going vertically and on these ladder trusses you've got yet again another handful of moving lights which look all which look like they're all profile units and LED floods which are obviously LED which are modern LED strobes and it'll look amazing it will look amazing show like this you don't need that many uh, lighting units to uh, make shapes and images on the stage because the uh, front projection is doing that all for you they will project different colors they'll project different shapes images and even uh, whole washes of that uh, backdrop so the lighting is primarily done by the projections it's as simple as that it's as simple as that so i'm looking forward to this i really am so now we know what's going on roughly uh, within the technical aspects of the show we're going to get on to a bit of the, the background between the artists we'll be back after this if you're a band member or an artist, dancer, singer, actor, street performer and you're listening to this and you'd like to talk to us on our show about your uh, latest gig or your album release on uh, digital media or even uh, want to talk to us about a student show how about dropping us an email on musterxmedia1983 at gmail.com and we'll get you on our show the Human League are an English synth-pop band formed in Sheffield in 1977. Initially an experimental electronic outfit, the group signed to Virgin Records in 1979 and later attained widespread commercial success for their third album Dare in 1981. The album contained four hit singles, including the UK-US number one hit Don't You Want Me. The band received the Brit Award for Best British Breakthrough Act in 1982. Further hits followed throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s, including Mirror Man, Keep Falling, Fascination, The Lebanon, and Human, and US Number One and Tell Me When. Human League were also known as The Future in 1977, The Men, The League, The League Unlimited Orchestra in 1982. They've been with record labels Fast Product, Wall of Sound, Virgin, AM. East West and Papillion Records and their associated acts are Beth, Clock DVA, Vice Versa, Heaven 17, George A. Morda, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and Joe Callis. So the current members are Philip Oakley, Joanne Catherall and Susan Ann Sully. Past members you've got Ian Craig Marsh, Martin Ware, Philip Adrian White, Ian Burden, Joe Callis, Jim Russell and Russell Dennett. The only constant band member since 1977 has been lead singer and songwriter Philip Oakley. Keyboard players Martin Ware and Ian Craig Marsh both left the band in 1980 to form Heaven 17. Under Oakley's leadership, the Human League then evolved into a commercially successful new pop band with a new lineup including female vocalist Joanne Catherall and Susan Ann Sully. Since the mid-1990s, the band have successfully been a trio of Oakley, Catherall and Sully with various sidemen. In, 1980, in 1978, the Human League have released nine studio albums. No, sorry. Since 1978, the Human League have released nine studio albums, two remix albums, one live album, six EPs, 30 singles and several compilation albums. 
They have had five albums and 15 top 20 singles and had sold more than 20 million records worldwide by 2010. As an early techno pop act that received extensive MTV airplay, they are regarded as one of the leading artists in the 1980s, second British invasion of the US. Now we've heard a bit about the Human League, we're going to take a look at their support acts. So the first of our two support acts is Tom Bailey. Thomas Alexander Bailey, born 18th of January 1956, is an English songwriter and singer, composer, musician and record producer. Bailey came to prominence in the early 1980s as the lead vocalist for the new wave band Thompson Twins, which released five singles that entered the top 10 charts in the United Kingdom during the 1980s. He was the only classic member of the band to have formal music training. From 1994, Bailey, who was a member of its latest incarnation, Babel, released two commercially unsuccessful studio albums. He currently works in various musical fields, including scoring for film. He records and performs dub music under the name International Observer and Indo Fusion Music with the Hollywater Project. His latest collaboration is the Bailey Salgado Project, BSP, an audio-visual ensemble formed of Jose Francisco Salgado. A few moments later, so in 1977 to 1993, Bailey was in the Thompson Twins and that started off in 1977 with Pete Dodd and John Rugg and John Podgorski. did not want to move to London so Andrew Edge played drums with them for one year before Chris Bell joined. The group eventually ended up as a trio with Bailey on vocals, guitar, bass and keyboards. His then girlfriend, Alana Curry, was on percussion, saxophone and vocals, and Jay Leeway on percussion and vocals. The Thompson Twins became fixtures on MTV during the 1980s as the video for Hold Me Now, Lay Your Hands On Me and King For A Day were frequently played. Subsequent to the marriage of Bailey and Curry, Thompson Twins released their final album Queer in 1991. Then in 1993-1996 they in Babel, then in the 2000s they were in International Observer, and they released several dub electronica albums under that name. In 2010, Tom Bailey went solo and he performed the Thompson Twins songs live for the first time in 27 years on the 17th of August 2014 at Temple Island Meadows, Henley on Thames, Oxfordshire for the Rewind Festival. Also in 2014, Tom Bailey took part in the Retro Future Tour in the USA. He was billed under the moniker Thompson Twins Tom Bailey. The 2014 Retro Futura Tour also featured Howard Jones, Mid-Yule and China Crisis. During an interview with the Stuck in the 80s podcast prior to the tour, Tom Bailey said that while preparing for his return to the stage, he went to a start and bought a Thompson Twins Greatest Hits CD to help him learn the songs again. In 2016, Tom Bailey released a new solo single entitled Come So Far, which included a music video. In, on the 25th of April 2017, the official Thompson Twins Tom Bailey website announced that Bailey was recording his debut solo album and that he hoped to release the album in early 2018. The album entitled Science Fiction was released in July 2018 to promote the album, Bailey toured the United States and United Kingdom with the B-52s, Culture Club and Belinda Carlisle as part of the Life Tour. So his discography is Science Fiction 2018 under his own name. Then with the Thompson Twins, he did, they released a product of 
participation in 1981, set in 1982, quick step and sidekick in 1983, into the gap in 1984, here's to future days in 1985, close to the bone in 1987, big trash in 1989 and queer in 1991 and with Babel he released The Stone in 1994 and Ether in 1996. Now we've gone over some of Bailey's uh, past and past credits, let's check out Altered Image, we'll be back after this. Warning, this podcast contains strong, offensive and misogynistic language that some listeners may find offensive. The name's Vert, Percival Reginald Vert, and I run the P-Vert Detective Agency. The year is 2055 and the police have been defunded, so if you need a police investigation, the cops will charge you a thousand big ones a day. Because of this, the government introduced the PI Act, where the private investigators can undercut the police so justice can become affordable. These are my case files. And we're back. So, we're going to take a look at Altered Images um, past. So Altered Images are a Scottish new wave post-punk band who found success in the early 1980s. Fronted by singer Claire Gorgon, the band branched into mainstream pop music having six UK top 40 hits and three top 30 albums between 1981 and 1983. Their hits include Happy Birthday, I Could Be Happy, See Those Eyes and Don't Talk To Me About Love. They were signed to Epic Records and Diablo Records. And current members are Claire Gorgon and Steve Laroni. And then you've got past members who were Johnny McLean, Tanya McDade, Michael Anderson, Gerald McConty, Jim McCarvin, and David Wilde. So their early career. So Altered Images were former schoolmates with a shared interest in the UK post-punk scene. Claire Gorgon on the vocals and Gerald Caesar McInulty on the guitar, Michael Titch Anderson on the drums, Tony McDade on guitar and Johnny McElone on the bass guitar. Were all members of the Suxi and the Banshees official fan club. When they learned that the Banshees were going to play in Scotland, they sent a demo tape to Billy Chainsaw who managed the official Sixties fan club with a, note, uh, with a note asking can we support them on tour. The Banshees gave the band a support slot on their kaleidoscope British toy of 1980. Altered Images name referred to a sleeve design on the Buzzcocks single Promises and was inspired by Buzzcocks vocalist Pete Shelley's constant interfering with the initial sleeve design. After being championed by BBC Radio 1 DJ John Peel for whom they recorded a radio session in October 1980 they garnered enough attention to be offered a recording contract with Epic Records, but mainstream success was not immediate. Their debut single, Dead Pop Stars, reached only number 67 in the UK singles chart, while its successor, A Day's Wait, stalled outside the top 100. Dead Pop Stars was particularly controversial at the time, sung from the viewpoint of, of a has-been icon with irony but badly timed in its release shortly after John Lennon's death. Even though the song was written and performed before his death, a dance remix of it with different lyrics was recorded and released as the 1982 single Disco Pop Stars. Both were absent from the studio album releases but made it onto later anthologies. After these singles and their first two sessions of John Peel, Caesar left and formed The Wake. With additional guitarist Jim McKinvin, formerly of Berlin Blondes, they recorded their debut album Happy Birthday in 1981, largely produced by Stephen Severin of Suxi and The Banshees. 
The band also worked briefly with producer Martin Rushnant for the little track which became the band's third single and their biggest hit. The song reached number two in the UK for three weeks in October 1981, catapulting the band to fame. They quickly became established as one of the biggest new wave acts around and were subsequently voted best new group at the NME Awards, the most promising new act in the 1981 Smash Hits Readers poll. After a successful headlining tour, the band retained Rushnut as their producer and released their second album, Pinky Blue, in May 1982. That rhymed. It reached the top 20 of the UK albums chart and provided three more top 40 hit singles with I Could Be Happy, See Those Eyes and The Little Track, but was perceived as a disappointment by the British press. I Could Be Happy was the group's only foray into the US charts, with the single peaking at number 45 on the Billboard Dance chart. Later that year, after McKinvin and Anderson left and replaced by Steve Laroni, formerly of Restricted Code, the band began working on their third album with producer Mike Chapman. The collaboration between them with another top 10 hit, Don't Talk To Me About Love, in spring 1983, was a subsequent album Bite, was released in June. Half of the album was produced by Chapman and half by Tony Visconti. Although it reached the top 20 of the UK's album chart, the album sold less than the band's two previous offerings, which had both earned a silver disc. Before breaking up later that year, Altered Images went on to another concert tour that included the band's American debut at the Golden Bear in, Hunt in Huntington Beach, California on the Thursday 11th, August 1983. And the discography is Happy Birthday in 1981, Pinky Blue in 1982 and Bite in 1983 with Mascara Streaks, which is penned for release in 2022. Now we've had that bit of background, let's see what it's like with the show itself. We'll be back after this. This podcast contains themes that are unsuitable for younger listeners and parental guidance is advised. It's been 30 years since it came. What the f*** was that? Yeah, the gas sucks. Hold on, guys! It's been 30 years since it came. So the pre-show setup was essentially the downstage portion of the stage with a black kabuki in the middle of the stage and all their kit was highlighted with Congo blue so nice dark lights so nothing special and to be honest it was kept very basic indeed. Now all the lighting throughout their set was basic as well because at the end of the day there wasn't that many lights in the rig for the entire show for Human League so they only so because they're supporting and they're only uh, on the uh, first quarter of the stage. There's not much lights for them to have. So yes, it was kept very basic. When the show started, unfortunately, altered images had a bit of a technical glitch on their, their opening song, where most of the volume was down. It was louder on stage than it was in the auditorium. It's as though the sound engineer forgot to uh, switch the main mix on. And when he realised his error, it got loud. It was instantly loud. And uh, if you weren't prepared for that, it was a big shock to the ears. <laughs> that I guarantee. <laughs> Especially with a lot of their audience being in their 50s and 60s in this day and age. I have to say, at the start of their show as well, once the sound issue was fixed, there wasn't much clarity in the vocals and when I say that it did sound a bit soupy where uh, it wasn't mixed in nicely so 
you couldn't distinguish the uh, all the uh, all the backing vocals from the uh, from the lead vocals, which there should be some clarity and some distinction between it, but it just wasn't there, and also just wasn't that great a mix. And yet again, it took up to three songs, I think. Yes, it was three songs before that was put right. So I think there must have been an issue with reloading the uh, settings, or they had the set, or they didn't adjust the settings from uh, the last time they were in whichever venue first, because obviously the uh, settings change because of the depth of the uh, room that they're playing in, as well as the height of the room that they're playing in, and the position of the mixer point from the room that we're playing in last time. Lots of variables which will affect your sound. But it was fixed. It was fixed. Fair play to him. You could hear uh, constantly for those three songs where adjustments were being made. And uh, eventually it got nailed where it needed to be. When Altered Images started, the house was nowhere near full. Their set started 30 minutes after the doors opened. So there wasn't time for many people to get in. And by the end of their set, they had a lot, of, a lot more people in. And to give Altered Images a bit of credit, every song that they did, there was louder and louder applause, which goes to show that as uh, people coming in, they were enjoying themselves listening to Altered Images. Although, one serious downside from that set that, uh, that I have to say is their version of the Ting Tings, uh, That's Not My Name. It just felt as flat as pancakes, and I don't think those harmonies suited the vocalists. They just didn't. It's the harmonies that they needed to work on. The rest of the vocals for the song worked really well, but they just couldn't quite harmonise. I think everyone's voices are just far too different for that song. Although, they all sang with enthusiasm, they all played with enthusiasm, and the band were completely... They were completely owning that stage in their own right. They haven't lost a thing from uh, performing from back in the day. From the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, now we're in the 2020s, and they haven't lost their stage presence, they just haven't. But as much as they uh, were enjoyed by the audience, I have to say, altered images are just not my cup of tea. Although, as I said, people enjoyed them in that arena tonight, so they haven't done wrong at all. They haven't done wrong. It's just a shame that they had a few glitches to start with. Unfortunately, these things happen, and it does happen from time to time. Right, we're going to get on to uh, Tom Bailey next. A few moments later. And we're back. So Tom Bailey's set started off in pure blackout. Now, in the changeover, there were some LED buttons dotted around the downstage portion of the stage, which still had the kabuki in the same position because the Kabuki makes up part of the opening acts for Human League, but we'll get into that later on. To make both support acts different from each other, Tom Bailey was given some extra kit, and he had these LED buttons that are standing up vertically, dotted around the stage, so around the uh, drum riser and all the other instrument risers, and from stage left to stage right at different intervals, there was plenty of them, there, there's probably like 20 of them, all in all. As soon as Tom Bailey was uh, introduced, buttons on the stage started to 
they started to strobe, they started to chase, the colours changed, the colours made a nice little wash, then strobed out, and it looked pretty good actually, it really looked good. Then when they added in the other lights from the main lighting rig, it looked even better. But yet again, the lights in the rig were only done to a limited degree because at the end of the day, there wasn't that much in front of that curtain, as in the Kabuki. So that's hence why they had to give him a different option, i.e. those lights that were stood on the stage and they just strike him afterwards. But it looked, it looked impressive, it looked really good actually, it really did. Also, what I noticed is the uh, lighting engineers, they used the mole phases pointed into the audience a lot more to emphasise certain rhythmic parts of the songs throughout the whole of the of Tom Bailey's sets as well. So, so he got a little bit more than, than altered images. But it worked well, it did work really well. And I have to say the lighting engineer for this tour is pretty good, really good actually. So be able to adapt each band to the kit that they got in that certain area in the way that he did. He has to be proud of himself, he really should be, he really should be. Throughout the performance, vocally, Tom Bailey still got a strong, diverse vocal range. And even with even with a little bit of uh, the electronic vocal effects put on from time to time, not all the time, but from time to time, it was still a standout, strong performance. He definitely hasn't lost his vocal range. It's not like other bands that we've uh, had on, that I've reviewed recently, but he definitely hasn't lost anything and I could say that he's gained more more within his vocal abilities over the years but I think it's just pretty much stayed the same since he started which is not a bad thing actually to be able to sustain your vocal range and vocal ability for 40 years plus that is really good not many people can do that you either got it and then you lose it or you gradually have a decline but Tom Bailey has stayed exactly where he was from many years ago. On today's performance, and I suppose for the rest of the tour, Tom Bailey was on a uh, DPL microphone which is taped onto his cheek. The reason for this is, if he was to have a handheld, he wouldn't be able to play the instruments that he plays. So in the show, he was either on the keyboard, he was on his own little set of electric drums, as well as the other keyboard player and the other and the main drummer as well so he was playing in addition of and he also at one point pulled out a harmonica now you wouldn't be able to do that if you had a handheld mic and to be honest if you've uh, got a handheld mic in a mic stand when playing a harmonica it is a pain in the ass to get it to sound nice so you might as well just have that taped on uh, microphone onto the cheek it works really well and the DPA microphones, I know from my own personal experience, they sound very crisp and if you look after those microphones, you will not be disappointed, you really wouldn't. Sound quality for Tom Bailey, well, it was good. Clarity throughout, there was no issues, you could hear every uh, bit of the vocals as well as the backing vocals and all the electronic instruments had a nice balanced feel to the sound mix and it was definitely a good noise, really, really good noise actually. And did the audience enjoy Tom Bailey? Oh God, yes they did. Well, throughout the show, they were standing up, singing and dancing along with him. And uh, at the end, he got a standing ovation because 
people weren't constantly standing they stood at, at the bits of the songs that they wanted so people sat, sat down or standing up and then going from sat down to standing up and vice versa throughout the whole of this section of show but on his last song as soon as he'd finished everyone was on their feet giving him a massive loud round of applause wolf whistles the lot he was definitely well received within the audience and they loved him and i don't blame him i really don't now we've heard from Tom Bailey's performance and we're going to finally take a look at Human League. A few moments later. And we're back. So at the top of Human League show, they had a classical overture. I don't know what it was. I, it, I couldn't quite remember what it could have been, but I know I've heard it. I know I've heard it a load of times. I think it was definitely a Mozart overture, but I just can't place what it was. I can't place its name. Although it did sound like Mozart to me, but I may be, I may be wrong. I may be barking up the wrong tree, but it definitely had a Mozart feel to it. I mean, you could tell if, if, you, if you know your music, you'll be able to tell the way how certain composers write their songs. They could have hundreds of songs, but they always are written in near enough the same style. It's just the unique bits within a, within the f structures of uh, music that you'd pick out. Yeah, that's that's someone's style, and it was definitely in the style of Mozart. Anyways, I digress. The mid-stage drape fell down, so it was a kabuki, and you can't go wrong with a kabuki. Such an underrated piece of equipment. You don't need to winch up a curtain. You don't need to have uh, extra uh, people to pull it up if there's no uh, motor winch on it why do that when you can just have a cloth that drops down on command so on the lighting desk queue you press the go button bam the bar that the kabuki's on will just release the clamps and there it goes kabuki goes down and then you've got the stage crew who have a string on the bottom of the kabuki curtain and just pull that kabuki off this kabuki was in multiple sections because of the way how it lined up with bits of the set but each set, each section had that same bit of drawstring on there so you could pull the kabuki off. It works well and no one even notices that the kabuki gets pulled off the stage. They just see it fall and they uh, think it's still there or uh, forget that it's even fallen. But no, the kabuki was dropped and it was pulled away. Very, very pronto. Now one thing that I loved most about this show was the video projection onto the set. It looked amazing. After spending a massive, massive amount of time aligning all those projectors, all six of those, those super powerful LED projectors, it just, it was mint. It was spot on and it hit every mark the way it needed to. You had, uh, for example, at the opening of the show, you had the projection on the steps gave the impression that the steps are moving as though it's an escalator <laughs> and it looked realistic it really did it's a good thing about projections if you've if you've uh, planned it right along with the set you can do a lot of things with these projections and no one will even notice and it is a cheaper option than having the same thing done out of led screens or led gauzes which you could do and it will look just as good, maybe a little bit more crisper on the LED screens. But at the end of the day, if you've got a really good, high-powered, high-def projector, 
it's not going to make much difference and it's a lot cheaper than having these LED screens and these LED uh, panels built into your set. This was just a much cheaper option and it did the same level of, of quality. Same level of quality of work and it looked amazing. It really did. In some places it looked like, uh, like a 1980s music video from some of the uh, illusions that they, are print that they were projecting onto the uh, stage and set. Now all the visual effects, well this goes into the same thing that I just saying, all the visual effects on top of the uh, projections such as the moving lights, they all had an 80s style about it. The way how you had all the bright neon colours which was a big thing back in the 80s, you had your pinks, you had your laser lemon laser lemon it's a yellow but it looks like laser lemon <laughs> and then you've got your greens so all your neon colors all your fluorescence that's where they started to be used a lot in the 80s with the modern lights the modern led lights you get that effect as though it was a uh, an early computer generated image that you'd find in the 80s on a backing video behind your tv presenter in a, in a studio or on a music video in the background it looked, it looked good, it looked very authentically 80s, it did, even though it was completely modern. Now how did the audience react to Human League? Holy cow, they loved it, they completely ate it up, they consumed the entire show. Now, unfortunately, because of the recent announcement with the government trying to dissuade people from going out in large venues full of people because of the old... Rona and the uh, government doesn't want to pay a furlough so they can't lock us down just yet that may be coming on but that is not part of this podcast so we're going to leave it there we only had 62% of people attending the show the whole show was sold out but only 62 people showed up which was a shame it really was but even though with 62% of the audience in the building it sounded full Especially when people were applaud applauding, cheering, wolf whistling and singing along. And I say when I say singing, I meant singing. From start to finish you had you could quite clearly hear the audience singing along to all those tracks. And I mean all of them. It was good to hear it actually. People sat back and enjoying well, I say sat back, standing up, watching their favourite band and singing along to their favourite songs. It's refreshing to see that. Especially after a hard day of politicians just being absolute... I don't even want to say the word because I want to keep this podcast family friendly. But you can see where I'm going, uh, where I'm going on this one. Had the people in charge of uh, this small corner of the uh, United Kingdom, had they acted responsibly and not panicked people into not coming out, this would have been full and it would have been completely loud. Even though it was loud being 62% full, it would have been able to raise the roof with not only the sound system, but the sheer amount of people singing along to these songs. It was great to see, it really was. Now the last song I have to say from the set was Electric Dreams, and why wouldn't it be? It's their most famous song. and. Everyone was singing along to that. The phones come out, lit up the auditorium <laughs> like it does the, in this day and age. And you had the visuals, the audio, the AV for that song 
it definitely looks like it could be a proper full-blown 1980s technology-based music video. It really looked that way and it's obviously designed to be that way and it looked sharp. It Oh god it looked sharp. Put a lot of uh, modern animations to uh, shame and this was just trying to be back in its 80s and it worked, it paid off, it really did. I thoroughly enjoyed tonight's show but from start to finish there I was just watching and enjoying the show listening to songs that I was brought up on as a kid it was it was amazing uh, and uh, unfortunately people be like oh my god you got to see something that I didn't get to see and I will turn around and say well don't listen to uh, the first minister of Wales but that being said thank you for listening to this podcast and if you've enjoyed our content why not check out our other podcasts which are story based podcasts and you'll find links to these in the description below so until next time guys bye for now